0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today on the show, I am thrilled to have William Gruskin, a person I've known over the years as an editor and dean at the Columbia University School of Journalism. I know Bill from his early days when he was a managing editor at the Wall Street Journal, and eventually he pretty much took over running Wall Street Journal Online, which, as he tells us, is the largest subscription news site in the world. Bill um, has pretty much seen everything there is to see in the world of the business world of journalism, and, and we're trying to do more of these shows that aren't just fund managers or economists, but actually bring people in who have run businesses and can talk about it. Bill is uniquely situated. He's seen both the decay in the traditional uh, business of journalism, but he's also been very active on the WallStreetJournal.com site, which has by all measures been wildly successful. They probably have, uh, of all the mainstream media tablet products, they probably have the best iPad um, app I've seen. It's just really a, a pleasure to use in order to read uh, a newspaper. They're they're fantastic. I know Bill for a good couple of years. I first met him early in the days of Wall Street Journal Digital when they were considering rolling out this thing called blogs. And Bill and I had had a a breakfast, actually not too far from here over at Pershing Square Cafe, going over what they can expect and how they should approach the idea of blogs at uh, the Wall Street Journal. And they took some of my advice. A lot of my advice they didn't. But I think some of the blogs that we've seen that The Wall Street Journal have put out, notably Money Beat and Real-Time Economics, have really garnered a pretty big following and are a nice addition to the paper itself. Uh, I've also spoken with Bill and I've spoken to classes at the Columbia School of Journalism about innumeracy and how easy it is for reporters to get bamboozled by numbers especially with what we've seen from trade groups and associations or politicians trying to twist economic releases in their favor. It's very, very easy if you don't have a facility with numbers or you're not especially good with math. Um, if you're an English major and your specialty is writing, not you know doing calculations to not fully understand statistics, not fully understand mathematics, it's, it's a challenge that reporters have— Always had, and today, where there's so little training and and so little apprenticeship periods, it, it's become even uh, more of a challenge. And and I recall speaking to him in a class at Columbia way back when. I've done it once or twice, and it was really quite fascinating discussing how not to misinterpret economic data. Uh, but Bill has really a uh, unique insight into the business of journalism what works and what doesn't work. And I think you'll find this to be uh, quite an interesting conversation. It's a little inside baseball, uh, but interesting nonetheless. And so with no further ado, here's my interview with William Gruskin.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: On today's show, we're discussing the business of journalism. And I'm pleased to have in the studio... Bill Gruskin, he's currently executive editor here at Bloomberg. Prior to that, he was dean at the Columbia School of Journalism, and he spent many years at the Wall Street Journal. Most recently, he was managing editor for the Wall Street Journal Online, which I believe is one of the largest subscription site in the world. It's actually
1: the largest subscription news site because Consumer site. Reports has- always had, and I, I presume still has more subscribers than, mm-hmm. than WSJ.com. But when it comes to news sites, yep, WSJ.com.
0: So lar- largest, and you were um, managing editor of the paper proper.
1: And I was deputy managing editor mm-hmm. uh, for um, in 2007 and 2008, overseeing all the domestic news bureaus as well as all, all the editing functions.
0: And, yeah. and let's, let's get in, start with your background, undergraduate degree in classics from Stanford. Right. You then went to John Hopkins uh-huh. and got a- Master's degree in U.S. foreign policy and international economics.
1: There you go, right.
0: Pretty good set of uh-huh. broad-based background to look at the worlds of business and finance. Yep.
1: Although I didn't actually get involved in business till I got to the journal in 1995. I'd spent about 15 years doing metro journalism.
0: So that's a really interesting entree. Yeah. What was it, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch and the, his predecessor, the Bancrofts, right. not known for being... Ex- especially generous with journalists, mm-hmm. what was the appeal to bring you over to the Wall Street Journal?
1: Well, what they were generous with was providing time and space to do really great journalism. No and doubt about so it. So in, in the mid-1990s, you might remember what the old Wall Street Journal used to look like. It was fantastic. Totally gray, two big long legs of, of type on, on the left and right, and then the little story in the middle that we called the A-head. And, and I was recruited to work on what they called the page one desk. Right. And there still is a page one desk at the journal, but I remember when I first got there, this is when the journal ran five days a week, right? So right. we had one three stories Friday. on the front page. You can do the math, three times five, 15. 15 stories. We had 12 editors editing 15 stories a week. Wow. Now, when I worked at the Miami Herald, you would do 15 stories a night. It, it, it really wasn't that unusual. So it was like coming into the Garden of Eden and right. saying- In-depth, deep- In-depth, uh, a little quirky, esoteric. Exactly. I
0: love those A-Head stories. They were A-heads always fascinating. Were great.
1: The A-Heads were great. The column six, the, the stories on the right side of the page generally were pretty heavy on the business and economic mm-hmm. front, often driven by news. The stories on the left side, you might remember, tend to be more like features. We'd look at things like race. We'd look at things like culture or you know, um, pretty much anything under the sun. And it was just an amazing, I, I feel very fortunate to have been part
0: of that. And you left when Murdoch came in, or what was the time? Yeah, so I- Was that a
1: coincidence? I I did leave about six months after Murdoch officially took the reins, and it was kind of a coincidence of several things. Uh, But the main one was I got a call from Nick Lemon, who at that time was the dean of Columbia Journalism School, and he said, we're looking for somebody to really move the school into the digital age, and it was a great opportunity.
0: Let's step back and look at the much bigger picture, the changes in the industry, and I referenced. A chart that uh, I think it was Ryan Chittam of yeah, uh, the at Audit, which Columbia is Climate Journalism Review, yeah, right? Sure. W- uh, showed that revenues at, at newspapers are back to levels of 1953, right? Inflation adjusted, yep. Uh, yep. As- astonishing, yeah. Astonishing, astonishing no, figure.
1: I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty clear trend line. You know? So
0: so is it the business model that's having trouble, or is it the content that mm-hmm. isn't itself? At issue because we've seen a lot of things change. So. You might remember the first
1: time I met you. I think you were you'd been doing your blog for about a year or two, a couple of years. And it was 04, 05. yeah, something. And WSJ.com was about to dip its big toe into blogs, right. And and I wanted to take you out to breakfast. And that's
0: right. We went to Pershing Square. We went to Cafe. Pershing where they
1: had the best whole wheat blueberry pancakes. And I didn't get an endorsement <laughs> for that, but but I deserve one. So that's
0: uh, um that's ten, almost ten, yeah. over ten years. Yeah, it's ago. probably about
1: ten years ago. That's it's amazing. It's a decade, man. You and I are
0: old. We are. Yeah, so... The, the funny thing is, when, when I began blogging, it was, oh, this is kind of fun and interesting. I right. don't have to send the letter to the edler. Right. I could do this myself. You could say what
1: you have to say, right? Right. And, and
0: maybe someone will read it, maybe someone won't. Right.
1: And I remember, I still remember... Um, dealing with top corporate people at Dow Jones when we were going to start blogging. I'll never forget. There was this one executive, uh, a woman with a Southern accent. I'll never forget. She said, why do people want to read blogs? Uh, You know, if you want to read an opinion, you're you're going to want to read it from the journal or the Times or something. And, of course, that that was clearly not true in 2004. Now, 10 years later – you know, when you look at the number of sources on, on business news and some of it, some of it's great and some of it's horrible and Mm -hmm. and a lot of it's kind of in the middle. And I think one of the big challenges for all of us, um, in the journalism world right now is how do you help readers navigate through that? But, you know, you look at Seeking Alpha, you look at Business Insider, you look at Yahoo Finance. I mean, these are very different, um, uh, outlets, but these have huge audiences in the millions of people. So
0: what does the, content creation industry say about journalism financial media
1: our world so you know in the journalism world there's really kind of two kinds of content creators there's the people who are out, out there doing the original right reporting they're they're going through you know balance sheets and 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 sec filings in order to dig up stories they're they're to listening to conference calls to try to ferret out what the Speaking CFO is. Speaking to saying. original
0: sources, hedge yeah, fund managers, exactly, traders.
1: Exactly, doing original journalism. Right. Then there's a lot of people out there who are aggregating or providing commentary, analysis, and opinion around what they're doing. And those are not too complete divisions between each other. Any good news website has some kind of aggregation function to it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, including you, Barry, will like go and find something new, and you'll reveal it to your readers, which did not appear in the Journal or the New York Times or Bloomberg.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're speaking with Bill Gruskin, currently executive editor at Bloomberg, but previously Dean of the Columbia School of Journalism and former managing editor for the Wall Street Journal Online. So this has always been the complaint about bloggers in general is, hey, we're doing original. Certainly a complaint about the people who only did aggregation. Like I I spent the latter half of my career, I began as a trader and became a strategist. Mm -hmm. So I was cranking out original stuff every day. And I always, in 03, 04, 05, that's really what I was fleshing out the right. blog with. It was only later where I discovered, hey, I have a ton of stuff I look And you and I discussed this. I have a ton of stuff I look at. At the end of the day, that just dissipates from my head. If I make a list of the 10 most interesting things I've read, maybe that has a value to somebody. Absolutely does. And yeah. I've been now doing that for a decade. Right. Right, and so it's not that I'm. I now I'm completely understand the the business side of journalistic complaint that hey we're doing this original research, mm-hmm. and one of these sites that was the the beef at HuffPo uh, that yeah. they would take all this original right. content and do an it. intro sentence and an outro sentence right. and da da, and how is that not copyright uh, violation?
1: Well, as long as you're. Only taking a small excerpt, then it falls within they were taking the very, yeah. And, and I think Huffington Post sort of got taking, wise to it, yeah.
0: They were also taking the punchline, right? Y- exactly. You know, if I don't, here's a thousand word article, let me take right. the 150 most important words, right? Why do I have to go read which
1: that article? to 95% of your readers is plenty, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't necessarily need to read a, a 2,000 word story about why the CFO of the Facebook just stepped down yesterday. You know, they just want to, you know, the headline, a couple of paragraphs and boom, they're off to the next story, right? right? So, you know, I think this has been hard. You know, the the traditional media companies have a lot of problems. The main one is in a digital world, every single piece of content gets atomized, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you don't necessarily need it all to be, uh, delivered to you in one package that hits your doorstep or that's like a 30-minute broadcast on TV. Every every article, every photo is available anywhere in the world.
0: You could create your own paper, a little of the Times, a little of the FT, a little Bloomberg, and that's your own. Barry, if you and I
1: wanted to, we could have a laptop. We could go to WordPress and we could create a website in literally two minutes. Right. And anything we put on that website would be instantaneously available to anybody in the world. Think about that.
0: That, that's a that's a, that a game
1: changer. Is, that that is a game changer, and that's scary, and a, and it fundamentally and irrevocably changes the economics of our business.
0: You've done a lot of digital media. Yes, I have. You, I've been you've, fortunate. you've looked at the changes in the business model right. of of media and financial reporting. Let me. I I wrote a few company names down because sure. I was knowing I was going to speak to you. I was thinking about let's think about the companies who are making running a journalistic enterprise a challenge. Okay. And not so much from the content side, from the business side. So here's the short list I came up with. Craigslist Yeah, Craigslist essentially gutted the classified eviscerated business. Eviscerated classified ads. Evisa, a huge yeah. source of revenue for... Absolutely. Uh, eBay has done a lot to take right. over the sale of used cars and right. new cars. Zillow and Trulia on on residential Absolutely. real yeah. estate. Um. I don't know what mobile has done to the business model, but it's just another wild card, yeah. another random factor. And uh, you know, when we talked, we talked earlier about blogs and Twitter. They're really more in terms of content. But what about things like Facebook? What is Facebook sure. advertising, which seems to be doing well? Yeah. How is that challenging? How are all these companies challenging the business model of uh, journalism?
1: So you know, the interesting thing is. A couple of years ago, people used to really focus on things like Craigslist, which, as you said, really did a job on newspapers classified ads. And newspapers classified ads, I think they had like an 80 to 90 percent kind of margin. They were just, you know, any uh, idiot could run a local newspaper, right. you know. But what's interesting, so with Facebook and obviously with, with Google as well, so you, you have a few issues. One is they're just generating huge amounts of advertising inventory. Uh, it just a, at a scale that's that no news organization can really hope to match. You know, mm-hmm. even the Guardian or NewYorkTimes.com, you know, th- they don't come close to holding a candle. I, where did I? I was reading in one of the Facebook earnings stories today that two thirds of their 1.2 billion users log on every day. You
0: know? They have they have two interesting data points: daily average users and monthly average users. Yeah. but the one caveat I'll I'll warn you about is. If you click a like button that can the, the that you count as having logged on. Which yeah. really what is the net dollar gain? The zero right. in, increase. Right. The the where their profits seem to be coming are people on the site, right. looking at the stream, looking at ads going by. Right. But even let's say it's a third of their advertise it's still an immense daily number of page views.
1: Exactly. So, you know, a few years ago, back when I was at WSJ.com, we were looking at digital ad rates, uh, they call them the CPMS, which is the cost per thousand impressions. Be 10, 20 Some some parts of the sites were for thirty, forty dollars. I don't know what WSJ.com's ad rates are these days. I assume they're still pretty high because it's a premium audience. But a, a lot of publishers are, are looking at CPMS of seventy-five cents a dollar because that's what Facebook charges.
0: Right. Well, but keep in mind it's a mass audience right. and the financial audience. I could tell you on the blog five years ago, uh-huh. fifteen, eighteen, twenty dollars was not uncommon. Uh-huh. Now it's three, four, five dollars. I mean, it's a side, it's a side business. It was never intended to be my main business. But if that's your main business, that's a seventy-five percent drop in, in revenue. And and
1: it's clearly going down, down, down all all the time. So a lot of news sites are now in a situation where they're trying to generate more and more traffic just to keep their head above water. You know, mm-hmm. if you can generate twice as many page views and the CPM goes down by fifty percent, you're exactly breaking, where you were right. last year. But it's very hard to to drive twice as many page views every year.
0: And, and you're compromising your content. Well, there you're you go, because you do a lot of slideshows. Yeah, right. Slideshows right. and uh, extreme headlines and exactly all, all of the the worst sort of clickbait stuff that you know really takes you from true gener- journalism. To, right. Uh, I, and there's a reason people look at web based stuff somewhat differently than they do um, uh, a print uh, yeah. outlet like the Times or the Journal, because a lot of it is nonsense.
1: Yeah. And also advertising uh, on most news websites is terrible. I mean, it just is. I you mean, the ads themselves. Yeah, the ads themselves, uh, the formats have not really improved. When I first got to WSA.com and to. 2001, they were sh- showing me a rectangular ad that would go on the homepage. It was what they call 300 by 250, which right. stands, for the that's no- the stands for the number of pixels. That was right. 2001, and I agreed to put it on the homepage, the ad department. When you go to WHA.com now or pretty much any other website, that's pretty much what yeah. you
0: see. It's been 13 years. You have the 710 by 90, right, right, the, ba- the banner right, headline. Right. I mean, and sometimes you get the skyscraper, I think, is 160 by right. 600. I mean, everything else
1: has changed in the digital world, but... Right. but the, this kind of concept of we're going to give you a, a rectangular ad we're going to stick next to a story, right. so, and somehow there's going to be a lot of value for
0: the advertiser. It's just not true. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Today we're speaking with Bill Gruskin, currently executive editor at Bloomberg, but previously dean of the Columbia School of Journalism and former managing editor for the Wall Street Journal Online. Since you left the journal, oh. or really a better way of saying this is... Over the past decade, we've seen the sort of uh, segregation of outlets by political partisanship. And so I I jotted a few down. So you have Fox on the one side and MSNBC, which is a smaller version of it. I tried to figure out who was the other side of Drudge. I, I can't really There's put
1: nobody that really has really that isn't kind of on audience, the left. Yeah. The left is completely yeah, it's off sort of in its f- own. more atomized, right? Yeah. The,
0: the right seems to walk a little more in lockstep, mm-hmm. yeah. And then uh, you know, so you have you have people like uh, Ma- Matthew Iglesias and and obviously Paul Krugman, right? But Krugman is a guy. Krugman is a guy with a very specific. I uh, have to remember. I interviewed him last week. I have to remember. Uh-huh. Say, Krugman, Krugman, not yes. Krugman. As in Krugerrand. Right, that's a good way to remember yeah. that. But what is this bifurcation by politics? Yeah, Because the studies seem to show people on the right go read their sites, yeah. people on the left go read, and you end up with this alternative, two alternative universes, yeah. neither of which necessary, necessarily reflect reality.
1: So the first thing to keep in mind is the actual size of these audiences i mean here in new york city we tend to focus a lot on these uh, outlets like msnbc and fox mm-hmm. what is M- msnbc's nightly audience 250 350 400,000 viewers or something uh, a, like a that a good
0: a good Blog posts can get that. Yeah.
1: And what, what's the size? Uh, how many people live in this country now? 320 million? Three, 315. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Fox News is much, much bigger than MSNBC. What does that have? One and a half million viewers right. a night, something like that? So. First of all, you know, we all here in New York get very focused on this. But mm-hmm. when you actually get out of New York City, you find out that, you know, outside of certain pockets, not really that many people actually watch these programs. Or,
0: or care for that. Or matter.
1: care. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, half of Fox News' audience comes from Jon Stewart and Steve Colbert because they need, <laughs> they need the material. <laughs> That's a lot something. of writers. Exactly. Exactly. So, secondly, you know, this is the way the world used to be. Um, I oh, mean, really?
0: I mean – Go back a century, you're talking.
1: Uh, Go back 40 or 50 years. I mean, Mm -hmm. basically, so what happened, maybe a little bit more than 50 years ago, but... um Pre-war? Yeah, talking? pre-war you would take a city like uh, New York City and it had a whole bunch of daily newspapers. It didn't just have you know, two or three. Uh, and m- most most metro areas these days only have one newspaper. If they're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. So if you run the only newspaper in town, you, you have to be very objective and middle of the road, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you can't piss off the Republicans, you can't piss off the Democrats. But in the old days, there, there were newspapers that were very closely aligned with various political factions and political mm. parties. And this is the way the, the world used to work. So this is nothing new, this balkanization no, of the internet. No, if anything, what was new was the relatively brief period of time where you had these, you know, where every city has one and only one very objective news provider that like didn't cross the line between the two.
0: And, and I have to tell our audience, you're waving to every other person that goes by between yeah. <laughs> between the Wall Street Journal and, and Columbia. You must know half this building. Uh,
1: I feel like uh, even the guy who fills up the coffee machine probably <laughs> worked at the Journal at some point. Yeah. Uh, it,
0: Phil, did you guys have good coffee machines? Uh,
1: we did for a few years. Yeah. But not like and, this. Yeah. No. No. And, and as I recall, you, you actually had to pay for it too.
0: Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Right. Right. The, well, right. the
0: the secret is to have a data services business hey, that we, subsidizes the coffee.
1: We uh, tried. We just weren't quite as good can at I, it as Mike Bloomberg can was. Can I
0: tell you something? There, Tellerate and, and Tellerate. what was the Reuters product?
1: Oh, uh, Icon? or Well, that's the new one. I don't know. what. what the, there yeah. were
0: three or four yeah. companies that were in the running. I mean, I say yeah. this as an observer and not to kiss his behind, but pretty much that race is over now. It it's, seems like it. it. It's kind of fascinating to see a really competitive market. It's like search. Hey, yeah. there were all these companies right. and then Google just said, everybody, here's the new search algorithm, you all lose. Right. And that's kind of what happened. It's a relatively rare thing to see happen.
1: Yeah, well, it's what they call the network effect, right? Right. Basically, at a certain point, you know, 80% of the customers go to right. a single that's platform. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh,
0: that's, that's what yeah. happened here. So yeah. we were talking about, uh, that's a really interesting observation. Yeah. In other words... Objective journalism and middle of the road. Yeah. Hey, I'm not going to share my opinion. I'm just going to report yeah. the facts. A post-war aberration lasted half a century, right? And now it's... we've gone back to the pre-war version. I mean,
1: some look at there's so many news outlets that that still you know play it down the middle, and certainly any of the really big national news organizations. I mean, obviously there are people who are going to disagree, but I would say, you know, there's a lot of news out there that that. That is, that I think we would all uh, consider as more often than not very objective. And and what what you really want to strive for, and I tell journalism students this all the time, isn't so much objective; it's being a, a fair and open minded
0: journalist. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Today we're speaking with Bill Gruskin, currently executive editor at Bloomberg, but previously dean of the Columbia School of Journalism and former managing editor for the Wall Street Journal Online. Commentary and opinion, isn't that something that journalists would, hey, that's the gravy train. You put in your 25, 30 years, right. and then you get, get tapped and, and, oh, now yeah. I'm a commentator. Right. I publish less and, and get paid more. That That was really a, a certain, yeah. and you can see this with a, a ton of people. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually you get a talk show and-, and Right. And, you then, know. and
1: there you are talking into a radio microphone. Uh,
0: but the the real fascinating thing for me is, as someone who's an investor, as somebody mm-hmm. who consumes an awful lot of journalistic yes, content, yeah. what is the future of this industry going to look like, not just in terms of politics and left yeah. right, but in terms of- uh, look, I have my stable of people that I think are. I mentioned Jason's Y earlier, right? Dan Gross who's with The Daily Beast and Gretchen Morgenson at the New York Times. Right. and I could probably put together a list of 20 people. It doesn't matter what masthead they're publishing under. Um, I want to read what they have right. what I have to but say see
1: so so here's what's really interesting about that. You can create a Twitter feed or an RSS page where you s- scoop up Jason's column, Gretchen's stuff, Jesse's stuff you know and you can basically create your own homepage mm-hmm. right i mean whether it's twitter or using rss or or google plus or something along those lines and so the idea that you have to buy the wall street journal in order to read jason uh, or the idea that that you that you that you that you have to buy the New York Times in order to read Gretchen,
0: you know that's sort of dissipating these days. And
1: so, what's going to fund them? How so, are they?
0: They're not going to do that work if no one's paying their salaries. Yeah,
1: I mean, we're seeing increasingly ado- increasing adoption of paywalls and subscriptions. That was services. inevitable, wasn't it? Uh, you know, it seems inevitable now. I, I remember when I was at WSJ.com, which had a paywall going back to 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 1996, you know, people thought we were crazy in the, the early 2000s. And I would sit there on panel after panel being berated by the future internet people saying, you know, you guys have to take down your paywall. You aren't part of the conversation. We
0: can't link to you. And the was, the um, advice I gave you at that breakfast uh-huh. a decade ago was to put your blogs outside of the paywall, but only let paid subscribers comment uh-huh. and everybody else could just read it. And I also, I don't know if you recall this, I also said, take all of your content that's more than 30 or 90 days old and put it outside the paywall because yeah. the subscription would be supported by the news. Right, right, Stuff that's old, hey, monetize it with advertising. So I think we took
1: part of your advice. All the blogs were outside the paywall. Mm-hmm. I think on a technical aspect that we weren't able to put the comments behind the paywall. And, Not and, behind
0: the paywall, just allow subscribers to comment. Right. no, I understand.
1: Comment. And then on the archive thing, we ran into a buzzsaw because Dow Jones had... With Factiva News Service, which is a very profitable. Thing. Oh, it is. And, and you can't put those stories outside the paywall because then you get to manage that. There you, go. you see, this is, this is one of the issues with any kind of a legacy media sure. company, right? You have these kind of entrenched uh, um, areas of interest, sometimes for very good reasons. Some of them are pulling in millions of dollars of revenue, right. but sometimes at very high margins. And once you start threatening their business, I'll tell you about a really interesting website. It's called KSL.com. So KSL is. The NBC affiliate in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh-huh. Okay, it's just your ordinary NBC affiliate. It happens to be run by a company called Deseret News, which is um, operated by the Mormon Church. Mm-hmm. So they decided about ten or eleven years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, they could see that Craigslist was about to come to Salt Lake, right? And because they're Mormons, they weren't too happy about Craigslist and the kind of standards. So they said, but they
0: did. They have since dropped the issues that were the problem. All well the sex ads in the back and the prostitutes no, so thing. what
1: i'm about to tell you is uh, noel craigslist has no yeah, craigslist. craigslist has just gotten smarter about it like <laughs> well, the, they they've from what i understand <laughs> so it's still there it's just oh, a little yeah. more hidden yeah yeah um but so ksl which is a local tv news affiliate said we're going to start our own classified ad service but we're going to make it really good you know how much how much traffic that thing gets it gets around 250 to 300 million page views a month wow um, and they have premium ads, which they charge money for. They have this huge audience, w- which they can monetize.
0: How come nobody else has challenged Craigslist? That's that a
1: way? really good question because Craigslist is a really crappy experience. Well, I it's
0: mean, it's it hasn't changed and it feels like twenty years right. old,
1: and it y- y- it just feels kind of, at least to me, it feels kind of icky. You know now. My, my daughter is just moving to Albuquerque. She's, she's, she's in her mid-20s. She used Craigslist to find a couple of housemates. They seem like really nice kids. I right. mean, obviously, most of the transactions that happen on Craigslist are fine. But the overall environment doesn't really, isn't really that conducive, I would think, to a lot of what people want to do in the classified ads world. So I think a lot of what media companies have assumed, oh, you like can't have a good classified experience. You can't have a paywall. These are things that became part of the mantra that nobody really challenged them. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's time to start challenging some of those things. So
0: clearly, uh, Washington Post, paywall. Yeah. New York Times, paywall. Boston right. Globe, paywall. Yeah. New York Newsday, out on Long Island, paywall. Right. So uh, whoever said there's not going to be a paywall, yeah, uh, at a certain point when it's free and people were canceling subscriptions in right. droves, that right. had to go away. Yeah. I, I think... That was inevitable. Right. I'm surprised so many people push back. It doesn't take, you don't have to be a math genius to say, all right, so we're going to spend all this money creating content uh-huh. and we're going to give it away right. and we'll monetize it with 75 cent banner ads. That's <laughs> exactly. not going to happen.
1: And even those days, they were maybe $10 per thousand banner ads. You know, Still not going to pay. There was no projection you would ever generate enough traffic. Right. It was just you know this blind faith that don't worry, it'll get better. Or if we don't do this, we're going to be outside the conversation. Right? That just simply wasn't true.
0: Yeah. So so now we have four pay journalism yeah. moving behind paywalls. Yeah. But then we have the 538s and the quartzs sure. and the voxes. Is all it free. they have yeah. they're all free? Do they have just a different cost structure or are they going to run into the same problem in a few years when When the V C funding dries up, are they gonna have the same issue?
1: So I think the cost structure is a really big piece of this issue. I mean, any newspaper these days has they still have printing presses, they still have trucks, a lot of them have unionized workforces, you know, and they still have to support the legacy part of the business because that still brings in seventy or eighty percent of the total ad ad revenue. You
0: coming back from from LaGuardia, you see the New York Times printing area. It's on huge. The Van Wick. It, right. It's this. It's a football field. Right. An aircraft hangar facility. Right. It looks brand new. It, it's it's got to cost facility. hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. And then they
1: got trucks going out every day. You know, with unionized drivers and stuff. Whereas you, you know, there's this website here in New York City called. DNA Info, which is kind of a weird name for a website, it's actually getting a, a lot of traffic. They've hired a lot of really good Metro reporters from the New York Daily News. Mm-hmm. They've been breaking a lot of stories. They do a lot of good neighborhood stuff. And they don't have any of these legacy costs.
0: So it, it's the structure, the model is that right. much cheaper. Yeah. So, so the guys who have run the projections on the 538s and the Voxes, yeah. that's that's they, they should be able to make a run of it.
1: Well, keep in mind, 538, who owns 538 right now, Barry? Oh, ESPN. That's ESPN. Right. That's right. So you know,
0: ABC, ESPN, so if, Disney. Like, effectively, right? If it loses another deep-pocketed,
1: uh, if it, if it loses a few million dollars here and there, okay. it's a couple quarters in the couch yeah. cushion. Um, it, it, it's
0: all those. Uh, it's Disney World is subsidizing. Yeah, those yeah. Sort of or things.
1: ESPN. I mean, ESPN's a huge cash yes. cow. So monster. You know, um, and Jeff Bezos has bought the Washington Post. He bought it mm-hmm. for two hundred fifty million, which I think Pocket was One percent of his net
0: worth, right? You touch on something that's really interesting. Are big media outlets eventually going to become trophy acquisitions? Well, and what was the Chicago paper? Uh,
1: the Chicago Tribune. Uh, well, who picked that up? Well, Zell, there was that whole it, or... uh, unfortunate uh, period with Sam Zell, who who you know drove that truck right into the mountain. Right. And now they're doing a spinoff where they're trying to extort a big dividend out of the new company. I, I, actually, I actually wrote a piece for Representative Henry. Waxman. Waxman about mm-hmm. it. Where I said the LA is,
0: Times was supposedly up for sale and the
1: LA Times part. But but for example, take the Boston Globe, okay? okay so which about, was
0: formerly owned by the New York Times. Exactly.
1: So in the late 80s or early 90s, the Times paid 1.1 billion dollars for it. Oh my god. Wow. I think I think they sold it for 50 or 70 million plus and actually I think the Times had to keep some of the pension obligations. So it was a so, good investment. Yeah. So yeah. Right. How do you lose a billion dollars? You know, it's like the old joke by Buffett: How do you become a millionaire? Start with a billion dollars, then you buy an airplane. So, right. But so he sold it to John Henry, who owns the Red Sox, and right. and who's committed to local civic life in Boston. Right. And he has a strong vested interest in 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 having a healthy newspaper. Or at least I hope he does. So so the, right
0: uh, the state of journalism is dependent on the altruism of. Billionaires. He um, says sitting in, in Bloomberg's headquarter, world headquarters.
1: <laughs> right. Or some of the philanthropic efforts we've seen. So mm-hmm. Steiger's Pro Publica it was uh initially funded by um Herb and Marion Sandler, you know, mm-hmm. from from the countrywide. Right? Oh. Or uh, no, not countrywide. Another mortgage company. What was the mortgage company? That, oh, the, I, re- that the I, I know who you're at. talking about. Yeah. That's right. right. That's right. And, and they put and up... they
0: just won a couple of Pulitzers. They yeah. have a few. No, under th- their I belt. mean they're doing amazing work. But Eisenguir's ja, piece publishes both at ProPublica and the New York Times.
1: Right, and they did the piece on the New Orleans Hospital, which ran in the Times I magazine. remember that. That, that was, was amazing. Story. So, so the Sandlers put up $10 million a year for a few years and now... That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. I mean, it wasn't that much for them. But, it's still,
0: but I mean, you know, generally speaking... Right.
1: And now they're off raising money elsewhere, or uh-huh. ProPublica. So so, so the Sandlers, it's actually Herb Sandler's contribution, has been diminished because they've been able to find other sources of, of money.
0: So uh, effectively one aspect of journalism is either find the sugar dad or be fortunate enough to have someone set up a foundation. Mm-hmm. To, and isn't that going on with The Guardian in the UK? Right. So, so I they're, mean, they're a wealthy, they're a big foundation. They've done really well.
1: Well, they've just done really well. So they're run by the Scott Trust, it's called. Mm-hmm. And The Guardian's been losing money on a, pretty, uh, on a pretty regular basis. And The Guardian has an amazing digital strategy. We actually were fortunate at the journalism school to, to hire Emily Bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, away because she was and I think at the time we hired her the Guardian newspaper sold around 300,000 copies, and their web audience was 25 to 30 million.
0: That's amazing numbers.
1: And, and that was five years ago. And from what I understand now, I was just on a panel earlier this morning with Heidi Moore, who writes for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And she said their web audience now is 40 to 45 million. That's
0: unbelievable.
1: So, but, Heidi
0: is angry at me these days. Well, I don't know what I did I'm to sure, piss I'm off. sure
1: you'll make it up. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, so the Scott Trust owned a lot of auto trader. Mm-hmm. Which is this fantastically lucrative thing, and they sold it for about a, a billion dollars recently. Wow. So that can be their endowment, and if you figure a five percent investment sure. r- return, so they can those, run a fifty million so dollars. They can forever. run a fifty million dollars, and you know at some point they'll get rid of the presses and they'll go to a pure digital operation. It right. may not be, you know, anytime in the next few years, but at some point they will. And you can run a, a pretty nice newsroom for $50 million, to,
0: to say the least. So so the future of of media isn't completely hopeless.
1: No, as long as there's wealthy people around to fund it. And we are seeing some business models emerging where media companies like the Atlantic has a really lucrative kind of conference business. Uh, oh, really? You, you see a lot of see- Wall Street
0: Journal does a lot of conferences. Right, yeah. Business Insider has just exactly. expanded into that area. Exactly. Uh, the FT. Oh, you know, we really haven't talked about we the FT. We haven't talked about it. the FT. is so a great story. I, I love FT Alphaville. Is is, is I love that yeah. that blog, yeah. which is outside the fire the right. paywall. Yeah. But yeah. you know, uh, from from our perspective. It's a relatively inexpensive paper, like the Wall Street Journal. Sure. It's relatively inexpensive, so we sign up for that as well. Right. It's a really well regarded, yes. well written paper. Yeah, very credible,
1: very thoughtful. Uh, and they break a lot of stories, but they were, they were a little late to the game on the digital subscription strategy, but mm-hmm. they really have, when, when you look at their digital subscriptions, they've really done well. Um, they've got, they're very smart about how to market it and, and how to target the marketing campaigns to people who are reading story X versus story Y. I,
0: I have said it's gotta be since Murdoch bought the journal, I have said the FT is really should be the business section of the Times. Mm-hmm. And if the Times was in a healthier situation, they should actually reach out yeah. and grab. But they can't. My plan B is this guy buys the Times mm-hmm. and then buys the FT to fold into it. And then you have a a really dominant global paper, both U.S. and, and continental.
1: Well, that would be huge. I don't know if it's going to happen any. By the way, so, I give
0: a lot of free advice to billionaires I, and I t- none of them
1: listen. I don't know because you know buying a newspaper seems like such a smart strategy in 2014. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking.
0: It's not a business investment. It's a trophy. Right, exactly. The New York Times is a trophy. The Wall Street Journal right. is a trophy. FT is a trophy. And obviously, yeah. the Washington Post where I have a column twice a month. Uh, and that's really why Bezos, you know, yeah. he could have called me directly, could have saved him a lot of money. <laughs> but um, it, it it's really yeah. uh, the changing dynamics. So uh, I know you have to go somewhere else. I want to wrap this up sure. on a positive note. Good. The future of journalism, the future of financial reportage mm-hmm. and media, it, it, is it going to survive in some Absolutely. healthy format? Yes. Or is it going to become this little... Thing at, that's
1: off in the corner. I'm more confident about business journalism than really any other part of the journalism world because, for, and we used to see this when I was at WSJ.com. You know, we, uh, when I took over WSJ.com, it had been around for about five or six years. They already had about a half million subscribers. And when I left six years later, we had over a million. And, you know, I'd like to say it was because of our great staff and how smart I was and all that. But the truth is, People can see a direct relationship be- between paying for quality news, paying for quality business news, and, and getting something right. out of it, right? Now, is it
0: just business news that people are willing to pay for, or are they going to be willing to pay for I think non-business I, news? I think
1: increasingly, as, as people want to understand the world, as we have a more globally connected world, and as people realize that there's some r- – relationship between the quality of journalists doing the work and the quality of journalism that you get out of them, that there will be increasing demand for it. Whether the demand will ramp up fast enough, I don't know. But as you see, if you look at kind of any big business, when it goes through some huge gut-wrenching transformation, there's a lot of the messiness along the way. And then eventually something emerges. And I think we're seeing some of that emerge now.
0: And and how long is it going to be before the universe of of financial news and in general media um is has found comfortable footing how long do you think this transitional period is going to be are, are we through the worst of it or is there still a lot more wrenching things to come
1: i think that we're in for a long period of uh of of this because, you know, there's um, a Columbia business professor wrote her, her book called the, the End of Competitive Advantage, mm-hmm. and it's about how barriers to entry fall as quickly as as you erect them. I mean, in the old days, you would erect a barrier to entry in, in in your business, and it lasts 5, 10, 20 years. Now, thanks to to technology, as soon as you build it, somebody's out there trying to figure out a way around it. So I think what you need are journalism institutions that are much more nimble, mm-hmm. much more technologically adept. Um, we've started at the J school, at the journalism school, training students in computer science and coding and data and algorithms, because we want the next generation of journalists to be much more adept at this stuff and to be much more pliable and flexible and to have the kind of dexterity to deal with unending technological change.
0: You know, I I would be remiss, and I know you have to run, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Recode. Recode, Which Kara is Swisher, the, and, and Walt Mossberg, yeah, right. The two tech, uh, yeah. Walt Mossberg is a legend at uh, in technology at the Journal. That's just another example of yeah. no legacy costs. Launch a new model exactly. and immediately immediately hit the ground and and with traction and and gain an audience. Uh,
1: and it also shows the power of individual brands. So. Mm-hmm. If you're, I don't know how many Twitter followers Kara Swisher had at the time that that she left Dow Jones and started her own business, but I'm sure it was in the hundreds of thousands. So when she went from the journal to her new business, she took those followers with her. Mm-hmm. In the old days, if you went from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, your readers stayed at the Wall Street starting Journal. Starting over. But isn't that interesting? Yep. And think about the kind of incentives that creates for journalists these days. If, if you can create your own audience, you can basically take that with you anywhere you go. And so that increases you know, the incentives to do it. And it means that you have a lot more individual control over your career. And, and So the
0: future isn't bleak for journalists? No, I don't think so at all. And the future of the media is going to be different than it is today, but there's reasons for optimism. And, you know, there's a lot of great
1: stuff to read online. And when you think about – you're sitting there with an, uh, your uh, iPhone at the doctor's office and, and you're waiting half an hour. You're not reading, you know, U.S. News and World Report from four weeks ago or Reader's Digest <laughs> from last month. You have access to – literally thousands or millions of sources. The world, the entire world. I mean, isn't that a good thing? It is. Isn't there something good about that? And, you know, over time we will figure out how the business, we're already seeing some business models emerging and the opportunity to be able to sit at your dentist's office and read the Johannesburg newspaper or listen to a radio station from Prague or read your kid's blog all on the same device, there's something good about that.
0: I think there's something fantastic yeah. about it. Well, that's an optimistic note we good. should end on. Uh, we should always end on an optimistic that, note. That's right. Well, I've been speaking with Bill Gruskin, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, now with the Columbia School of Journalism. Bill, thank you so much for coming Thank by. you, Barry.
1: This was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, this has been great. And we'll see you again next week.
1: You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.